From Brennan to the Boca Chill, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Salduck to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 58, The City of Dreams, Part 2. Filled with ambition and optimism for its bright future in the early 1890s, Port Townsend began construction on a larger city hall that was located on the corner of Madison and Water Streets. Almost as a joke of fate, the contract to begin work on the railroad south from Port Townsend was awarded on April Fool's Day of 1890. By early June, there was nearly 2,000 men at work, which included the construction of a depot, roundhouse, and a rail yard at the south end of the city. These would all be built on landfill at Ka Tai Lagoon. By September of 1890, trains were frequently running daily from Leland Lake, which is about 20 miles away. While the rails finally began to take shape, there was an imposing structure above on the bluff that was also taking shape, that of the Jefferson County Courthouse, begun in 1891 and built in the Romanesque style. According to a newspaper report published in the Seattle Post-Intelligencer on the 30th of June, Willis A. Ritchie's design for the Jefferson County Courthouse was one of eight that was considered by the Board of County Commissioners. Of these eight submissions, two semifinalists were selected. One of these was done by the Port Townsend architectural firm of Whiteway and Schroeder and won by Ritchie. The article stated, The Board of County Commissioners has been in session the past four days examining plans for the new courthouse it is proposed to build here at a cost of $100,000. Of the eight sets of plans submitted, two are still under consideration by the board. These are the plans drawn by Whiteway and Schroeder of this city and W.A. Ritchie of Seattle. A selection will be made tomorrow. County officials went with the latter architect, who was experiencing wide success in contemporary governmental building competitions. Willis Ritchie also designed, at about the same time, the Thurston County Courthouse in Olympia, which also actually hosted the state legislature from 1905 until 1927. This building for Port Townsend, then beginning an economic slide that would not abate until the late 1920s, was done in an economical way. The building had a large scale and a monumental bell tower, but costs were cut on building materials. Instead of the Richardsonian Romanesque's usual rusticated ashlar walls, the Jefferson County Courthouse had brick walls with only foundation work and trim lintels, arches and courses picked out in rough-faced stone. This building would open in late 1892, the same year the new City Hall opened down on Water Street. Both of these buildings would be added to the National Register of Historic Places in the early 1970s and still stand to this day. The City Hall building is now home to the Jefferson County Historical Society and Museum, and if you ever get the chance to check it out, do it. Despite all this early progress, though, the situation quickly began to unravel. Instead of focusing on laying track to the south, the Oregon Improvement Company, a subsidiary of the Northern Pacific Railroad, was spending its time and money in land speculation, which was not working out at all for the company. It ended up going into bankruptcy receivership in November of 1890. To the north, the railroad was completed all the way down to Quilcene. It was here that somebody finally figured out that there was such a thing as Mount Walker being right there, and everyone quickly realized that there was just no way to get around it. So that was the end of that railroad line. And quickly, the hopes finally died that Port Townsend would ever become anything close to being the leading town of the young Evergreen State. 
Right on the heels of the railroad debacle came the financial crisis that was known as the Crash of 1893 and, with some irony for Port Townsend especially, was caused by railroad overbuilding and debt occurred through speculation. Commerce in the city came to a near screeching halt and quickly Port Townsend Bay resembled a ship's graveyard due to numerous vessels being left out at anchor to rot away. The sky-high property values of the early part of the decade were now worth very little, and everyone in the city soon realized that, like the railroads that caused the panic and ensuing years-long depression, their city of dreams was terribly overbuilt. There were numerous buildings in the downtown area that sat vacant, and all the streetcar lines in the city were torn up, not even a decade after they had been laid down. Nearly all of the city boosters fell silent and a lot left to seek greener pastures. The city had a brief moment of reprieve from its downtrodden outlook in March of 1893 when the federal government opened the huge post office, court, and customs house up on the bluff above downtown. Construction on the project started in 1885, and the massive brick and sandstone clad building would not be opened on time or on budget, experiencing several financial delays and not opening until seven years after work first started. But almost as soon as the new building was dedicated, people began to leave the city in droves. During the last decade of the 19th century, nearly one-fourth of its population fled, which left less than 3,500 people behind in the now quiet city. Never again would the City of Dreams be counted among the top dozen most populous cities in the Evergreen State and quickly fell into a prolonged state of decline. Brief hopes of future railroads would pop up over the following years, followed by half-hearted boosterism, and it all amounted to nothing but unsubstantiated rumors. That little line that was built out to Quilcene actually ended up running until the 1980s, but it always operated at a loss. On top of that, it was said to have changed hands the most of any railroad in the United States. Quite the dubious claim to hold, if you ask me. The defense of Port Townsend actually goes back farther than that of Fort Townsend to the south. In 1855, Alfred Plummer had a large log building in town converted into use as a blockhouse and named it Fort Plummer. Plummer was a captain of the local militia, which was known locally as the Port Townsend Guards, and while he had the blockhouse in town converted, he also ordered the construction of a blockhouse out at Point Wilson, which was named Fort Wilson. This blockhouse acted as an early warning system for Port Townsend to warn of any potential attack during the Puget Sound Treaty Wars. When the conflict ended and no threats ever arose, the blockhouse was quickly abandoned and left to rot at Point Wilson. Throughout the first half of the 1850s, several marine surveys of the territory suggested that two lighthouses should be built on Admiralty Inlet, Whidbey Island to the east, and Point Wilson on the western edge. 1856 saw Congress appropriate enough funding for the construction of one lighthouse, and the Lighthouse Board decided that the best suited for this first lighthouse was Whidbey Island. On the 21st of January, 1861, the Red Bluff Lighthouse opened. This lighthouse was located in what is today Fort Casey State Park. Point Wilson would have no light or fog signal for another 18 years. The residents of Port Townsend began to lobby for funding for a light and fog station at Point Wilson, arguing that marine traffic had increased significantly and the station was absolutely necessary. Congress would eventually appropriate funds and in 1879, the SS Shubrick, which was a 140-foot lighthouse tender, arrived at the point to deliver the necessary building materials. Work began on the light almost immediately. This early light was actually built atop a two-story Cape Cod-style keeper quarters, basically just a rough wooden tower constructed atop the home. In addition to the keeper's quarters, the lighthouse service also constructed a building to hold a boiler and 12-inch steam-powered fog whistle for the station's fog signal. The tower had a fixed, fourth-order Fresnel lens, which was typically used in lights on shoals, reefs, and at harbor entrances. 
Known as a beehive or a barrel, this lens captured and directed light by prismatic rings to a central prism where it emerged through the convex lens as a concentrated beam of light. This new light was commissioned on the 15th of December, 1879, with the light being visible up to 13 miles away. This event was actually noted by the lighthouse keeper across the inlet at Admiralty Head, Lawrence Nessel, when he noted in his log, light at Point Wilson in operation for first time. David Littlefield, a resident of Port Townsend, was made the first keeper of the Point Wilson light and was paid $800 a year for his troubles. Littlefield was a veteran of the Civil War and had first arrived back in 1867 to farm the land. In 1869, he married Maria Hastings, the eldest daughter of Lauren Hastings, one of the founders of the City of Dreams. After leaving the lighthouse service in 1884, he settled in Port Townsend and at various times served as the sheriff of Jefferson County, mayor of Port Townsend, city councilman, and the collector of customs. The home that the Littlefields built in 1887 still stands today and is listed as part of the Port Townsend Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. 1894 saw a new 4th order Fresnel lens be installed, this time with a revolving apparatus and the new lens projected a white light with short bursts of red light. Just two years later, the federal government began work on what would eventually be named Fort Worden. The government had deemed the old Fort Townsend site unsuitable for coastal defenses and had selected the new site near Point Wilson. Prior to 1891, the government saw little need to fortify Puget Sound, but that attitude did a complete 180 when the Puget Sound Naval Station at Bremerton was established, thus making protection from shore-based batteries crucial to the security of the new shipyard. Congress had recently passed a bill that included a massive amount of money to be spent on the construction of seacoast fortifications. Mr. James G. Swan had many contacts in Washington, D.C. and began to advocate that some of that money should be spent fortifying Admiralty Inlet. Though it's unknown exactly how much influence he had in the decision, it's obvious he had at least some, because it was decided that three forts would be built to completely cover Admiralty Inlet in a triangulation of fire. This triangle of fire, as it would later come to be known, consisted of Fort Casey on Whidbey Island, Fort Flagler out on Marrowstone Island, and then Fort Worden on the northern outskirts of Port Townsend. All of the forts would be built and ready for use by 1902, with improvements and additional batteries being added over the years. That same year saw Fort Worden being designated the coastal defense headquarters of Puget Sound. By 1904, the light at Point Wilson had become threatened by coastal erosion mainly caused by gnarly winter storms, strong currents, and constant wave action. In an attempt to halt the erosion, the lighthouse service ended up dumping over 1,500 tons of large quarry rock and riprap along the north side of the point, which created a 1,200-foot breakwater between the water and the buildings. The light station at Point Wilson would be hooked up to the city's water supply for the first time, and a backup fog whistle would be installed. Prior to being hooked up to the water system, the lighthouse keepers had to collect rainwater for both the use of the household and for the boilers for the fog whistle. In light rain seasons, barrels of water had to be brought in. As commercial traffic continued to grow around Puget Sound, the need for a new light at Point Wilson became increasingly important. In 1910, the much-needed funding was finally given to the newly curated Bureau of Lighthouses to construct lighthouses across Puget Sound. And, in 1914, the aging tower was replaced by a new 46-foot-tall octagonal concrete and masonry tower that also had an attached fog signal building, but it was located on the most exposed part of Point Wilson. The Fresnel lens was removed from the old tower and emplaced on the new one. With its new focal plane at 51 feet, the Point Wilson lighthouse was now the tallest on Puget Sound. 
The rickety old tower was removed from the old light and it continued to be used by families that were stationed there and still stands to this day, though not a lot of people know that it was the original lighthouse. On the 7th of July, 1937, the Bureau of Lighthouses was eliminated and responsibility of the light transferred to the United States Coast Guard. The light stands today and was recently restored and opened for overnight stays thanks to the United States Lighthouse Society under a lease with the Coast Guard. Fort Worden has the distinction of being home to the final two-story gun battery that was ever built for the defenses of Puget Sound. If you've ever seen the 80s movie, An Officer and a Gentleman, then you're probably familiar with it. It was home to the memorable scene where Richard Gere yells at Lou Gossett Jr. that he ain't got nowhere else to go. Battery Kinsey was constructed in 1908 and was armed with two absolutely massive 12-inch guns on disappearing carriages. These guns were capable of firing a 1,000-pound shell up to 10 miles. Most of the other dozen batteries that were active at Fort Worden were located atop Artillery Hill and are very explorable today. In fact, I go to this fort a lot and there are still new things to see if I look hard enough. Fort Worden had a range of guns from huge mortars to 3-inch rapid-fire guns meant to take out anti-motor torpedo boats and other small landing craft. World War even brought the guns of Fort Worden right down to the beach in front of the lighthouse, and the remnants of that are still visible today, but are quickly being reclaimed by the elements. Fort Worden was active throughout the First World War, but then saw its troop presence significantly decrease during the interwar years. World War II saw the amount of troops expand greatly again, and the fort also became home to the Harbor Entrance Command Post, also known as the HECP, that was built atop Artillery Hill and was jointly manned by the Army and Navy. During this time, the fort was home to the 14th Coast Artillery Regiment of the U.S. Army, the 248th Regiment of the Washington National Guard, the 2nd Amphibious Engineers, miscellaneous U.S. Navy personnel, and Canadian liaison officers. The Army operated radar sites and coordinated Canadian and U.S. defense activities in the Strait of Juan de Fuca and Puget Sound. The Navy, responsible for the detection and identification of all vessels entering and leaving Puget Sound, monitored new underwater sonar and sensing devices. Most of the gun emplacements at this time were modified for anti-aircraft guns, which replaced the outdated coastal artillery pieces. Fort Worden personnel also manned batteries and fire control towers at the Cape George Military Reservation, which was six miles away from Port Townsend on the Strait of Juan de Fuca at the entrance to Discovery Bay. The Coast Artillery units at Fort Worden were disbanded and the huge guns were dismantled following the end of World War II, though it remained active as an administrative unit until the 30th of June 1953 when the Harbor Defense Command was deactivated and the fort officially closed. On the 1st of July 1957, the state of Washington purchased Fort Worden for $127,533 for use as a diagnostic and treatment center for troubled youths, basically just a fancy way of saying a youth prison. In 1971, the Diagnostic Center closed, and in 1973, the property was transferred to the Washington State Parks and Recreation Commission for development as a conference center and state park. In 1982, the movie An Officer and a Gentleman, starring Richard Gere, Deborah Winger, and Lou Gossett Jr., was filmed on location at Fort Worden and the surrounding Port Townsend area. Fort Worden was listed on the National Register of Historic Places on the 15th of March, 1974. Though the forts did not lead to great prosperity for Port Townsend, their initial construction and presence provided a lifeline to the City of Dreams when it needed it the most. The forts were no replacement for the boost rails would have brought the town, but it provided, pers but it provided prospects when there was little else. 
The population of Port Townsend increased from 1900 to 1910 by about 700 souls, with the military presence being a mixed blessing for the town. A 1915 study of the education of Port Townsend noted, The fever of the old boom days has not been completely lost from the blood. The will to work at the immediate task is not fully present, and the presence of the military with its easy money tends to keep alive the feeling of a glorious past that will surely come again. This conclusion might have been a bit subjective and overly harsh, but it did report a very tangent threat to the future of the city when it concluded, The most universal remark which one hears from the young people and the old too is this, Why should a young man remain in Port Townsend? There is nothing for him to do here. Port Townsend is now playing a losing game. It is educating its young people for a life that will lead elsewhere. I don't want to overstate the bleakness of the situation Port Townsend was in, though, for the sun still shone down on the city, and its natural setting and sheer beauty made up for almost everything else. Many of the residents that remained there were solidly in the middle class, and a few had even gotten quite rich. Like any city of its time, it had its fair share of scandals, murders, divorces, and mysterious disappearances to keep the citizenry entertained and the rumor mill in full swing. Particularly after the customs headquarters was moved down to Seattle, Port Townsend stood largely outside of the flow of historical events and remained a small, quiet city on an even quieter peninsula. Despite enjoying a brief boom during World War I, the 1920 census indicates that the population had fallen to below 2,850 residents, the lowest the population had ever been since the mid-1880s. Persistent budgetary issues meant that after the formation of a public port in 1924, it accomplished very little in its first 30 years. There was still probably a few people around town that continued to dream of the greatness Port Townsend could reach, but the decades of false hope and crushed dreams had definitely taken their toll. 1927 finally saw a large and stable single employer set up shop in town. The National Paper Products Company was a subsidiary of the Zellerbach Corporation of San Francisco, and it announced in July of that year its plans to build a paper mill at Glen Cove, which is about three miles down the bay from Point Hudson, so not very far at all. Since the plant would require huge amounts of water, Port Townsend quickly applied for and received the water rights to the Big Quilcene and the Little Quilcene rivers. Besides providing jobs during the construction and then the long-term employment opportunities at the mill, the company also took on most of the cost and trouble of rebuilding the old water system that Port Townsend continued to rely on. In all, over 600 laborers were hired to build the plant. The 5th of October, 1928, saw the new water system activated and the following day the plant opened for business. By 1929, the Crown Zellerbach Port Townsend Mill, as it was called then, had an annual payroll of $325,000 and employed over 275 people. The importance of this meant that along with the jobs the mill provided, numerous other businesses began to open and support it and its employees. The 1930 census numbers are a testament to the growth the mill provided, with the population rebounding nearly 40% from just a decade ago up to 3,970 people and making it the largest census count for the city since the boom days of 1890. While Port Townsend quite possibly suffered the worst of any evergreen state town during the Depression following the Panic of 1893, many old-time residents of Port Townsend took satisfaction in the fact that the city endured the Great Depression relatively well and better than a lot of its counterparts around the Sound. For the first time in a long time, Port Townsend was looked at with a little bit of envy. Continuing its steady rise, the 1940 census number showed the population of the City of Dreams at 4,693 people and increased by an additional 2,500 military personnel in December of 1941 following our nation's entry into World War II. 
War meant prosperity for Port Townsend, and the Crown Zellerbach mill operated around the clock 24 hours a day, and the huge influx of soldiers at all three forts meant that they were likely to spend their money in Port Townsend or the surrounding areas, boosting the local economy even more. The 1950 population grew to 6,888 people, but the continued growth from the military had now stopped, and soon the forts closed completely, with Flagler and Worden closing in 1953 and Fort Casey following suit in 1956. They have all since become state parks and continue to serve the area as tourist destinations and places to relax and get away for nice day trips. The 1960 census showed that the population took quite a hit with these closures, and the population reached 5,074 people, a reduction by nearly 25%. Though some probably began to think the boom and bust cycle was once again hitting town, they were proved wrong when the paper mill stayed up and continued to provide employment for the people of Port Townsend, and remained the largest employer and continued to support and rely on a wealth of related businesses. The City of Dreams continued to claw its way back and by 2010 the population reached 9,113 people. With the 2020 census, the growth trend continued in Port Townsend and its population reached an all-time high of 10,140 people, continuing a growth trend in every census dating back to the 1961. The 1960s saw Port Townsend begin its longest-lasting period of growth ever, but still nothing like what the boosters and speculators wrongly pushed the boom that Port Townsend was graced with during the 1880s and 1890s meant that many beautiful and impressive buildings and homes characteristic of the Victorian era remained long past ones in other cities around the West. These buildings had sat empty for years, but hardly any of them were ever actually destroyed following the boom days. This was mostly due to either lack of funds to do so, or there was just no need for the land, so the buildings remained, left largely untouched. Of course, this all proved to be a great benefit in the end. Victor Steinbrook gave a lecture in Port Townsend in 1961 that had been sponsored by the Port Townsend Art League and Chamber of Commerce, where he told the gathered crowd, Port Townsend is a museum and you are the caretakers. His words were quickly taken to heart and soon the city became renowned for its Victorian-era buildings and just the downright charm and beauty of the place. In January of 1963, the architectural legacy of the city was highlighted for the first time when one of its historic homes, the gorgeous Saunders Home, located at the southern end of town, hosted a homes tour. Many thought only 102 visitors would show up for the event, but were shocked when nearly 2,000 people flooded the town and caused quite the epic traffic jam. Everyone realized right then and there that they had something special, and everything needed to be done to ensure the current generation and ones in the future could enjoy its wonders. This homes tour went on to become an annual event and grew to be a very popular event for the Evergreen State. However, inadvertently it had happened, their city was now the only surviving Victorian seacoast on the entire West Coast and only one of three in the entire country. Starting in the early 1970s, the city of Port Townsend and its port, as well as numerous other people and organizations, worked hard to gain official recognition for the historic waterfront and the beautiful 19th century residential neighborhood on the bluff above the downtown district. Both would eventually be placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1976, and just a year later, the entire area encompassing both districts was designated as a National Historic Landmark District, which also included Fort Worden. 1977 saw Port Townsend playing host to the first wooden boat festival in North America, which was held at the Point Hudson Marina that was owned and operated by the Port District. The next year, the Wooden Boat Foundation was established, which sponsored the event for many years and always drew in thousands of people to the city every year. 
The Northwest Marine Center was opened by the Foundation in 2008 and has proven itself to be an invaluable resource for all boat lovers in the region. It's home to the Wood Boat Chandlery and sponsors regattas and various classes. Besides the historic landmark district, Port Townsend is now home to over 25 individually listed buildings that are on the National Register of Historic Places. The Crown Zellerbach continues to be an integral employer in the community, but in recent years the boat building industry in the area has thrived, seeing the construction of everything from small wooden craft to huge mega yachts. Numerous other facilities to support this industry have sprung up and the economy of the town has seemed to bounce fully back following the mess that was COVID-19. Port Townsend was awarded in 2000 with the Great American Main Street Award, which is a national prize that recognizes preservation-based economic revitalization efforts. There are numerous old homes that have been converted to bed and breakfasts and several historic hotels if you wish to stay and explore the town further. Like I said earlier, Manresa Castle is a favorite of my wife's and I and is close to a little bit of everything. While the first half of Port Townsend history was filled with unrealistic hopes and dreams that were frequently met with big disappointments, the second half of its history is marked with the continued prosperity and economic stability that the Zellerbach Mill brought, this time with significantly lowered expectations. While Port Townsend didn't exactly become the New York of the West, most of the call at home today will say that things turned out just fine after all. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Leaving a 5-star review really helps the show to grow and to continue to expand its audience, so any help that you can give in that regard would be greatly appreciated. Sources for this episode include the Skagit River Journal, City of Dreams, A Guide to Port Townsend, HistoryLink.org, Twilight on the Lighthouses by Jim Gibbs, Rural Jefferson County, Its Heritage and Maritime History by James Hermanson, Port Townsend, Years That Are Gone, Robert Hitchman's Place Names of Washington, James G. McCurdy's by Juan de Fuca Strait, Umbrella Guide to Washington Lighthouses, the Pacific Coast Architectural Database, the Jefferson County Historical Society, and the Puget Sound Coast Artillery Museum at Fort Worden. Thank you for listening to Episode 58, The City of Dreams, Part 2. Episode 59 will be released next week. A special thank you goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing Stillaguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck. And Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.